that's essentially how I was setting up uh, their workouts. So, you know, a typical thing like we'll do right off the bat would be just, you know, they walk in and we, we do an altitude drop, you know, something really intense. And then they'll go into doing uh, something maybe like a speed rush and lunge uh, for 30 seconds. Usually that's when, you know, right around 25, 30 seconds is where they're going to start to break down and not be able to hit that with a high intensity. And then they'll go into doing like an infinity, infinity walk or crawl or carry where that's going to get more aerobic. Uh, you know, they'll do that for about 90 seconds and then they'll do something till failure, whether it could be hanging from a bar or doing a cross crawl Superman or something like that. And that kind of just falls into that idea of the one energy system recovering the other. That was Rob Assis, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If you're curious what one of my top five paradigm shifts has been in training and performance the last few years, one answer of those might surprise you. One of those shifts has been uh, moving to herbalism and herbal supplementation as an important part of my total health and performance regimen. You could say I got into it much in the same way I got into perception and reaction-based agility work instead of emphasizing canned, cone, and ladder-based agility work or 505s or pro agilities. And that was really through being open-minded and making a shift towards natural methods, organic methods versus more manufactured methods and, and ideas. And after really years of drinking way too much caffeine, taking too much pre-workout and seeing my ability to harness adrenaline suffer as a result, amongst other reasons, I gave herbalism a shot and specifically through the herbs of Lost Empire Herbs. I replaced all but creatine in my supplementation routine. Uh, from my first dosage of, uh, it was the Phoenix formula, it was my first herb I used, I noticed substantial results immediately. I saw improvements in my strength and power outputs. And you'll see other coaches who also will recommend herbs for performance, things like Shiliagit. And Logan Christopher, CEO of the company, calls what they do performance herbalism, which means they focus on herbs that are so potent and powerful, that means you feel a difference when you take them. This isn't like the Jinko Biloba, the low-grade herbs you're seeing in capsule form at the local drugstore. These are performance herbs. They're 100% natural with no additives, chemicals, or colorings, and you can get extensive information on each herb or formula you purchase there. Lost Empire Herbs offers a 365-day money-back guarantee, so you can get these herbs virtually risk-free. They were founded by three brothers interested in athletic performance, and I'm really happy to have Lost Empire Herbs as a sponsor of this show. So if you're interested in the product and some of the products specifically that I use in my own training and performance regimen, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly to check out those herbs and get 15% off your purchase. So again, head on over to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly for 15% off. All right, let's get on to the show. If you're like me, you're always tinkering and trying to find new ways to put together the different training stimuli you already have. Much like cooking a dish, perhaps you have the same ingredients, but finding different ways to adjust those variables. Different timings, different heats, different uh, a different layout to it can change the way the dish does come out. And so training is no different. And if you ch- caught the episode I did with Mark Wetzel a couple shows ago, he highlighted a very important variable in training, which is complex training, pairing the pairing of exercises, not based off of just like heavy weights or plyos or doing those kind of kind of things together, but comparing and contrasting a long and short burst energy system. So complexing a five second effort with a 25 second effort. 
And what kind of things are we getting out of that and how much, how powerful that can be. And one example I just gave on that show was how I hit my lifetime best at, at the time jump uh, after basketball practice, jump touching 11-7 after doing a bunch of like wind sprints and suicide sprints that were very extensive, like 15, 20, 25 second bursts, many of them as fast as I could because the coach would have me race and things. But anyways, uh, our guest today, Rob Assis, is a track coach at Homewood Flossmore High School and has achieved a ton of his success there. Homewood Flossmore has been really successful in the state of Illinois. Uh, Rob has 17 years of coaching experience. He's a frequent writer and presenter on a number of outlets and has been a two-time guest previously on this podcast. Rob has a ton of really cool nuts and bolts ideas on those energy system bracket pairings, things that you can either do uh, working out in your garage or if you're a coach uh, working with athletes who want to sprint faster and jump higher, uh, how to utilize those and how to pair those with longer longer bursts uh, in the median of track and field, or even just in just general acquiring of being faster, jumping higher for a team sport situation. Uh, so the first half of the show is going to be all about that, uh, that topic. The back half, we're going to get into plyometrics and really building plyometrics from the ground up. So from ground contact times up, and also from, and I think I've talked about that on this podcast series a little bit, but another thing we're going to chat about that Rob has been doing is building plyometrics and bounding from the foot up, from the action of the foot up, and then getting into a lot of the variables, uh, the high-powered variables and variation that he uses to keep training engaging and interesting and causing athletes to continually adapt. So whether you're a track coach, a strength coach, an athlete, just interested in this whole thing, there's a lot on this show for everybody. I know we do talk about track a lot, but track is a nice kind of um, central point because it is such a focused sport on singular human abilities or, or, or very you know, focused human abilities of sprinting and jumping and throwing. But this uh, this show was really fun. It's a very conversational chat with Rob. He's such a smart coach. I love his tinkering and creative mind with all these concepts. And so it was really fun to sit down with him and have this chat. So let's get to it. Episode 235 with Rob Assis. Rob, it's good to have you back, man. So are you like going through withdrawal symptoms of not getting to work with athletes or at least your track athletes in person this semester? How's um, how's that been life been treating you with this virtual semester of yours? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's It's been challenging. Uh, we've been virtual uh, the entire time. And, you know, I think in general with teaching and coaching, uh, it's a pretty draining profession. But what I've really found is uh, it's also replenishes you in many ways. Uh, just being able to act, interact with, you know, students and athletes on a day-to-day basis is uh, restorative in a lot of ways. So this has just felt uh, over the course of the semester, just it's it's been a, a drain. So it's, it's certainly been a challenge, uh, you know, and I I miss it. And that's why right now I'm in Florida recharging because, uh, you know, my battery is pretty, pretty low, you know, heading into, uh, our, our last week, uh, last week. So, uh, it's nice to be able to get out in the sun here. (laughs) Would you say that kind of the absence of like the traditional, and I think this does happen, but like in the absence of the typical coaching structures, well, I mean, well, there's probably two parts to this. Is, I mean, I know we went into like the isometrics and how COVID's changed things. That was back a long time ago. Uh, that being just more focused, I think, on you and your isometric journey, things like that. But uh, And then you have the stress of just being able to be creative. But have you had a chance in the absence of training athletes in person to reflect on anything in a different way? Or has just probably the stress of virtual made that challenging? I'm sure it has, but uh, do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, it, I think there's there's been a lot of time to think 
But maybe one of the, the frustrating pieces of it is there's not uh, the outlet to, you know, kind of take those thoughts and, and, and utilize them uh, with athletes. So that's, that's been tough. And it's the same with teaching too. We've had, you know, a lot of time to, to think about how we could do things differently because we've, we've had uh, the opportunity to maybe have a little bit more time to think. But again, you know, when you're not in that face-to-face environment, uh, you're, you're limited really with what you can do uh, virtually. So it's, I think that's, that's kind of been a frustrating piece is just not being able to take your ideas and, and apply them. Yeah, I will say it does make you, I mean, and this has kind of been for me, the the home base, if you will, has always just been my own workouts because it always starts, that's where the ideas start. And then mm-hmm. we'll start testing it on the first wave of athletes from there if it felt good for me. But that, I mean, that is problematic too, because you know, the different neurotypes and elastic mm-hmm. and el- concentric and metabolic, it might be, that's the, the tough part is you almost have to be an actor on some level if you're doing it yourself to understand what an athlete who's different than you is going to experience this workout as. So, but I know one of the things we we're going to talk about that I think is an awesome like follow up to the Mark Wetzel recent podcast. And, and hopefully if people are listening, they got a chance to listen to that, but we'll, I'm sure we'll get into many of the topics that were covered, but uh, was your thoughts on creative use with the energy system brackets. And so for, for example, just a quick summary on my end, basically mixing very short burst, like three to eight second burst activities, like a, like a long jump or something with a longer burst activity, like a 15 to 25, maybe 30 second maximal effort that those two working synergistically to recover each other and enhance each other. So how have you ran with that concept? Yeah. So uh, when I listened to the podcast, uh, it was, it was cool just because it's been something that uh, I've been doing. I actually started training clients, uh, privately just to kind of have an outlet, uh, a little bit uh, out of my garage. Uh, and that's essentially how I was setting up, uh, their workouts. So, you know, a typical thing like we'll do right off the bat would be just that, you know, they walk in and we, we do an altitude drop, you know, something really intense. And then they'll go into doing something maybe like a speed rush and lunge for 30 seconds. Usually that's when, you know, right around 25, 30 seconds is where they're going to start to break down, uh, and, and not be able to hit that with a high intensity. And then they'll go into doing like an infinity, infinity walk or crawl or carry where that's going to get more aerobic. Uh, you know, they'll do that for about 90 seconds and then they'll do something till failure, whether it could be hanging from a bar or doing a cross crawl Superman or something like that. And, uh, that kind of just falls into that idea of the one energy system recovering the other. And then from there, so that's like the, the four, you know, the four exercises in four different areas. But what, what I found too, is we'll also just kind of break it down where maybe we're only going up until, you know, the first three, or like you were saying there with the, the jump and, and the, the sprint and the hurdle or jump and hurdle, uh, where you're just doing, you know, cycling back and forth between the two. So I, I found it one, it just is a simple way to improve workout density. Uh, you know, if I'm meeting with a client for an hour, you know, we can get a little bit more work done, uh, which is nice. But it just seems like the the workouts just flow really nicely, um, and they're they're still able to have high outputs when when those high outputs are called for, and it it just it seems to, to just work really well. And you know, at the end of the workout, the athletes don't feel like they're completely dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they feel pretty pretty fresh and ready to go. It's like you know, at the end of the hour, they feel like they could go out and you know PR in, in something, which I think is a good thing. So yeah, it's been fun. I like, um, you mentioned infinity walks. And so that gives me kind of two ideas. The thing that pops in my head, I was doing, this was probably, I was like 33, 34 years old. So uh, three, four years ago, 
And I was working, doing a long jump session with a Darian back in San Francisco. And he had such a good eye for, and, and those of us who have been in track would, you know, if you've done track and you've done the jumps in track or even sprints, even running 30s um, or, or doing a singular skill over and over again, you, you know this, is you hit the point where your nervous system is just kind of done with that skill. Like I've done, let's say I've done five max long jumps and you just aren't going any farther. And it's almost like you hit that neural threshold where the body, maybe it's in threat, maybe it doesn't want to keep jumping maximally. Maybe it, you know, maybe it just needs some new information. And so Darian, he had noticed that with me. He's like, you're, you're not, you're done. Like, and, and I think that's a stark contrast to, you know, the, oh, just one more jump. Oh, just one more jump. And you just keep mm-hmm. doing that. And, but there's no respect to the nervous system state when that, with that mentality, or you're just mm-hmm. doing one, you know, you just keep doing that for 30 minutes. You're never, you're never, it's like what Dan Fichter said in the recent episode. He's like, if you have a, uh, your feet aren't working correctly, or you have a technical issue. Well, why aren't we looking into the, the neurology element of this? And so one thing mm-hmm. I appreciated with the Darian, he, he had a physio ball or something. And so, he, you know, I, I, my nervous system was a little cooked from just doing the same skill over and over and over again. And that also lends in, I think, like the Ruzon long jump study, where if you jump different distances and stuff we talked about two years ago, you jump different distances, mm-hmm. different targets, that keeps the nervous system more alive. It also makes me think of even Stefan Jones talking on the recent podcast of Christian Thibodeau said, if you use the same weight on the bar set to set to set, it also doesn't have a good effect on the nervous system. I mean, again, we could, you know, do a toe touch range of motion test to confirm or deny that, you know, maybe it depends on neurotype. But anyways, where I was going is a Darian had me um, take a physio ball and basically just do like active squat physio ball for like 30 or 60 seconds. We're so basically just dribbling freestyle with the physio ball, trying to get down in different squats and different ranges of motion. And I did that for like 60 seconds. I'm like, oh, I feel better. Like, I feel like I can go back and long jump well again. Like my nervous system mm-hmm. got reorganized to do that. Mm-hmm. And so that makes me think, well, with you, you have your short skill, exploding explosive. You have a longer, like a speed rush and lunge. Again, garage, but cool. I mean, a lot of us have garage, mm-hmm. right? Garages right now and those yeah. types of setups. Uh, mm-hmm. And then an infinity walk, which also works in the garage. But so it's almost like you have this sandwich of quick, quick skill, uh, or AN1 bracket, if you want to think of the DB Hammer stuff, but like three to five, mm-hmm. three to eight second explosive, longer bracket, like 30 seconds, and then a neural reorganizer. So you would say that's kind of mm-hmm. your, your strategy right now? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's funny because even like a couple years ago, I was unknowingly, I think, doing something similar uh, with, uh, I wrote an article on Just Fly with the like large group organization for, for jumpers where it was just, I, I had a group of 20 and I had to, instead of just having them standing at, at, you know, when we're doing short approach work, instead of having them just stand there and wait, it was like, well, you know, we could get some work done. So they would go, you know, maybe have a wicket run and then uh, maybe like that, uh, the med ball punch uh, drill that Cam Joss likes or, uh, you know, a jump rope run. And then they would come back and they would do a short approach. And, and, uh, you know, I think it's, it's kind of that, that sort of same, same idea where it's just, you're not just doing that same thing over and over again. But yeah, the infinity walk, I think is, is a super simple solution. And Dan Victor talks about, you know, all the different, uh, benefits of it. But I think one thing that might be overlooked on it that could be most important is just the visit vision component. And I think that's really important for, for jumpers and probably something that I'm going to do, you know, normally say like, just have that fixed object that you're looking at. But with like a long, longer triple jumper, uh, we know that they have to be able to track vertically. So I'm thinking of like taking a laser pointer, you know, when we're able to meet with athletes and move that up and down the wall while they're doing that. So they can, you know, target it that way. 
just so they're able to keep their eyes on the board, ideally a little bit, a little bit better, or just find find some sort of device where they can, where it just projects something on the wall that moves up and down. So that's one thing that uh, one alteration that I, I'm looking forward to uh, trying with the athletes. That's uh, funny thought of a hit. So as you're talking about that, well, first for people who haven't listened to Dan's podcast or aren't familiar with that, you know, I know Cal Dietz talks a lot about it as well, but the infinity walks is it's basically you're walking in a figure eight pattern with your eyes continually fixed on a solid uh, one point as a solid gaze. So it's like your head has to swivel as your body's moving. I think about it as um, like the body working in spirals and circles. It's kind of like the ultimate example of that with a fixed head gaze. And it's good for you neurologically. In Dan's podcast, he talked about how it, if you superset it with a skill, it can help that skill. So just if you, if for those listening who haven't heard about that, that's what Rob's getting at there. And I've been using that too lately, and I really enjoy it. I'll tell you, I, those the Infinity Crawls were a trip for me, though. I got up from those, and I had to crane my head a lot because it was in a tight space. Like a garage, you would do this. It would be really tight. But, man, that was like a trip when I stood up, like versus the carries or something. That was that something happened there i, I should have test i didn't test it really with the skill but that was hard um to fix yeah, that they're hard. so i i yeah, mean, they, they are difficult it'll be interesting to see like you know you chart like libraries but as you're talking about this it's just funny because like you know I, I always i'm a believer that the answers you know are, are found in nature you watch like an elite athlete in their element who has just grown up playing and doing everything right and we can make so many observations from them but i think about you know everything we're doing it's almost like we're deconstructing football or basketball or soccer, right? Like, aren't we? In a way, like, you, right, we have fixed gaze. Like, you take any of those games, you have timing, you have fixed gaze, you have different energy brackets, you're going to be running longer sometimes, you're going to be running shorter sometimes, everything's multidirectional. Like, I was just watching the Bobby Stroop presentation on TFC, and you have, like, this chart of all the different foot positions you can end in that you're going to try to train. I think it came out of Gary Gray's work where it's like you could have the feet parallel next to each other. You could have the feet one parallel, one like at 45 degrees straight ahead. And you have like, I don't know, 15 or 20 different configurations, right? And so I think that so much of what we do is we're deconstructing a team sport on some level for lack of a better term. But then, I mean, it is good to do that because you can focus on a part where you're missing or lacking. And I think that takes a lot of skill to get to that point versus a shotgun approach. But what I was thinking is, well, one, for those of us who are track coaches and track coaches listening, it's like games are awesome. I mean, I love games. Uh, when I was coaching uh, collegiate track, I probably played games more than any. I bet you if you wrote down who played the most games of all college track coaches <laughs> in the nation on any division, I guarantee it was me. <laughs> I guarantee <laughs> we played so many games. And my kids were playing um, intramurals when they weren't practicing too. But I, I would say, so that's one thing. It's almost like we, we do this as a track coach is partly just because we want to control, we want to control uh, volume and we don't want people to get hurt, right? Like that's a, mm-hmm. a big part of it. But I was just thinking, and this could go for anyone, track or not, but like if you're trying to fill an AN2 bracket and you have some space, like you have a basketball court, what if you did a depth jump or something? And I've written workouts like this recently that have, have gotten good response from the athletes I've written them for, but like do some depth jumps and then do like, you could do like a court suicide, but why don't you just dribble dribble the basketball up and down the court four times and make a layup, you know, like something mm-hmm. like that. Or a soccer ball, like dribble a soccer ball 200 yards and you have to touch it, you know, every touch or something like that. Like how would that impact the athlete in terms of reorganizing it and then go back and do a long jump? Or I mean, I'm sure it's all works, like it's all creative and all novel, but... Uh, or if that sport has like a mental, like they love playing soccer or they love playing basketball or football or go out and throw them a pass, you know, three times or 
just I, I get these thoughts about how to integrate a ball that that therefore requires timing for the longer bracket where you have to you know do more work and do it intensely and have some emotional commitment then go back to your short depth jump or heavyweight or short sprint or whatever sorry it's a lot of rambling but you're just giving me some good ideas <laughs> things to kind of flow with yeah one thing that i i would like to do and we just weren't able to do it in, in terms of space well when we're indoors we have a great indoor facility but all four basketball courts tend to be filled uh but you know i've thought about like hey all right you're you know we'll go and we'll do a jump you know do a couple jumps and then all right go to this basketball court if it's open and, and play three on three real quick you know and just see and see what you know you, you got a minute or whatever to, to play some, you know, three on three up to, I've wanted to do that just to get the, the wonderful organic plyometrics that <laughs> yes. basketball uh, provides, but it just, again, you know, that, that space issue was there. Uh, but we do have a turf field and, you know, you give me ideas of, you know, maybe we can just, I can have the athletes go and, and, and play a little touch football, you know, in, in there as, as long as they don't get hit by a shot put, that's fine. <laughs> it would probably be pretty good. I love that idea of going and play. Like, yeah, because like basketball is the best warm up, right? So go play for yeah. X amount of time. Or, uh, I mean, if you had full court, I, mean, I always feel like full court just gives you that muscle temperature and it probably goes into that mm-hmm. 20, you know, if we're talking steady state work, that 10, 20, 30 second of running bracket a little bit more right. than half court. But yeah, I would say three, three on three full court. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. And then do some long jumps. Yeah. So if you, yeah, three on three full court for like, you know, two, three minutes and then come back and do a couple long jumps and then go play again. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and I just, that stuff, it just, yeah, it just reorganize. In addition to, I guess you could say the energy system, you know, this is recovering the other from just a pure power or force. Cause we like to look at those variables, but just the recovery that the nervous system too. And it's the same reason that I always thought about this, like, you know, why is it that you can only do 20 or 30 or 40 depth jumps max in a session? And if you do 40, like good ones, you're cooked. Like you're, you're done for a week, not done, but you're going to be recovering from that for a week on some level, mm-hmm. but you could go play a basketball game and do a hundred maximal jumps, you know, quote unquote, and be, you know, you might be a little bit down from just the total effect of the game for a day, but you will not be recovering neurologically from that effect as long. And you think about all the things that go into that game. You're not doing those hundred mm-hmm. jumps in a row. They're all spread out and you all have little quick jabs and cuts and longer runs and shorter runs. And your vision is fully active and emotion and all those things between all these. And so I, mm-hmm. I mean, this podcast has come out soon, but I was you know talking with Dan John about plyometrics and I've kind of reframed what I believe to be optimal plyometrics to really just like playing basketball and trying to do dunks at the end. I mean, depth jumps, I still always will believe in depth jumps, but it's almost like the core of it is the further you get away from playing basketball and trying to do dunks at the end of the game, you, you're missing mm-hmm. something. You really are. Yeah, I agree. 100%. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about two units that Simply Faster now has out that are excellent for training data collection in measuring bar speeds, sprint metrics, limb speeds, and more. The first is the VMAX Pro. If you're interested in barbell tracking technology that is affordable for the individual athlete in the garage gym, but yet is accurate enough to be trusted by professional teams, then you might be interested in the VMAX Pro. The VMAX Pro is a tiny sensor that attaches to the barbell or even the body to help with lifting and jump training metrics. It'll give you immediate feedback for jumps, lifts, and even measure the motion of the bar in 3D. It includes a travel pouch and the associated app works on both Android and iOS devices. You can auto-regulate with precision with the VMAX Pro. The second unit is the Muscle Lab IMU. 
If you want to take your movement training to the next level, then the IMU is something you would definitely want to look into, as it's a pocket-sized sensor that can attach anywhere on the body and deliver research-grade motion real-time. With it, you can collect ground contact times during sprints, limb speeds for jumping and throwing, and even support return-to-play metrics. The sensor fuses with the rest of the Muscle Lab sensor system for even deeper insights. You can improve your movement data and get measurement that matters today with the Muscle Lab IMU unit. You can improve the depth of your workout metrics with these two pieces of technology. And if you're interested, you can head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Check out their online store where you can find these pieces and improve the depth of your training metrics today. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah. So, and uh, one thing so. I would say too with track is like there's that, there's the game side or the team sport kind of coaching style where you know, there's going to be a lot of chaos and things like that. And then for whatever reason, track coaches, you know, a lot of times we want to like almost get people to be like robots and, you know, everything's got to be this way and you got to move this way and all that. So one thing that I do with, especially with the guys that I know aren't involved in a team sport is trying to bring those wonderful elements of the team sport to track and just create a better athlete overall. So, you know, if I got a uh, sacrifice some time doing some technique work with with the jumps just to create that sort of environment. I think that's uh, time well spent. I think that's important too, because just for the sake of track and field, and I don't mean to make this whole episode about track and field, but like track is a sport that needs to be saved on some level in the sense that you know if we just look at it as this mundane, technical, hyper technical, like which I mean anyone who's competitive on a deep level, you know that it's not like there's a joy and when you hit your PR, there's not probably a technical thought that was truly going through your brain on some level it's and it's to capture i mean maybe there is but i think what really creates that oftentimes people will do a pr and it was so effortless they didn't even realize it coming and you get to kind of witness your body going through these things but i i love the idea of of a sport and just encapsulating all of what makes us human if that makes sense and so I think that's awesome. And so I just to get outside the track box for a second too, one thing I've really enjoyed doing that, again, you could consider energy system contrast, you could consider it neural work, whatever, but um, uh, Tyler Yerby, Michael Sweefold, and then Sean Mishka, and that emergence group, I, and looking at their online course, that little weightlifting mini course they had was awesome. And they had a, one of their things that has always stuck with me is they just call it like ground crawl explorations, where basically just, you know, for however many seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, just you're just crawling on the ground freestyle you have to be creative so you can do some forward crawls some crab walks some handstands some cartwheels you just have to keep moving and you keep being creative if you're a break dancer you could break dance for and that's kind of what i try to do i try to like and so i've been using that more with just like it's like you know the an athlete i had the other day we were doing a we were just doing it for a finisher uh, after the main work but i just had him doing some some push press with more of an upper body emphasis and then he would superset those five push presses with 30 seconds of, of and this is alignment uh, with ground-based exploration and it's awesome for him doubly because one the one recovers the other the ground-based exploration the recovers and makes better the push presses and vice versa but also this is an athlete actually who also needs to be creative like and you just watch him sometimes they'll say warm up for your cleans um, or, or whatever and I'll, I'll say hey I want you to be creative every rep has to be different than the last one and he really struggles with that he's really thinking about like He's very mechanical in that sense. And so it's almost like also an excuse if you're going to use these longer brackets, I think it also can be for the strength, just strength and conditioning or pure, you know, not track related using, I've had a lot of enjoyment using those, um, supersetting that stuff with weightlifting sets uh, to, to also fulfill the bracket um, 
requirement or not requirement, but it's a good thing. And then to give them uh, God to be more creative. Yeah, and that actually made me think of one thing that we did uh, well, two seasons ago now. Uh, but we would just give athletes at the start of practice like 15 minutes to, like on a Friday, we just say, all right, 15 minutes, you get to do whatever you want to do for warm up. And tying this into the uh, Thibodeau neurotyping thing, you would see the type ones would do something where they're competing. So they would do like a mirror drill or something where, where they're competing. And then you'd see like the type twos. Uh, they would kind of, it would depend kind of where, who they were hanging out with. So it was like, okay, well, if they're, if they're hanging out with the, the ones, they'll go and do the competitive thing. Uh, but if that day they're hanging out with the more type three, the type three would literally go through the same warm up that we do every day. Uh, yep, it yep, was just, you yep, know, it was just, that. <laughs> th- that's what I do. It's, it, they were so meticulous. So it was like that, you know, you could go through this whole profiling thing, but if you just give the athletes like 10 minutes and watch what they do, it would tell you what the, the basically tells you exactly what they are uh so it's you know just kind of uh cool connect you know just made me think about the how that kind of connects the dots there yeah not to get off track but yeah back at cal with uh, especially with my swimmers i got to the point after seven years of kind of doing i hadn't been i might warm-ups evolved over the years from traditional warm-up prep to more active stuff and you know, thank god i mean that was such a huge transformation and i remember a lot of times i'd have a morning lift group and they would come in and I would give them two options. I'd say, okay, you can either do the warm up as written, here it is, or here's um, some sections. So it's like three minutes, kettlebell, and that's it. Three minutes, <laughs> monkey bars, and dip stand. That's it. You do whatever you want. And, and you would see, like, yeah, the type threes would just do the same. They want a written warm up, they want structured. The people who are more, and that's a big, like, line down the middle. I, in hindsight, if I was to continue to have evolved that, and, and this is a good idea based off what you're saying, is the third option is pick something competitive, pick something like uh, like a grapple, not grappling, but like you know something like reactive, where you have to touch their guy's <laughs> knee before he touches yours, or something that's um, something that you're involved, another person, it's reaction based, and that would have been cool to see. Here's three warm ups you can do today. One is the typical <laughs> you know movement prep, whatever. Here's um, Here's another one that's like you have this amount of time to do whatever you want with these implements. And then here's one that's competitive with a partner. And now see, and this being probably more strength and conditioning or gym related, but I would think it would be cool to say, here's this and now see what your athletes uh, pick. Uh, yeah, based mm-hmm. off what you're saying, you can probably, Matt, you could probably guess exactly what they're going to choose. Yeah, for sure. I love that. So yeah, I know we could go on talking about that forever, man. I, I really, I really like that, and so I'm, I always am excited to have these talks and get these ideas. And so uh, maybe taking a little bit of a turn is I and teaching bounding. So bounding is an interesting one. I, I think I've honed in on a process on teaching it. Really, probably the last. I mean, working with the Darians helped a lot. If you would have asked me five years ago on how do you teach someone how to bound, I'd be like, I don't, I don't, I don't really, I don't know. Like I just start doing it and cover the minimum. I would actually with my youth athletes, I would have said, here, here's 20 meters, cover it in as few steps as you can and just let them do it organically. But, um, what are your one, just what are your thoughts on, um, bounding progressions? How do you teach athletes how to bound people who can't bound? Why is that? And what are you looking for to help improve that? So in my context with jumpers, it's, it's obviously an important skill, uh, just because of the foot contacts. So I'd say in general, I kind of slow cook it, uh, for the most part. And, um, we really just focus in on foot contact, uh, from, from the get go. 
So it'd probably be what you would classify more as like a class one to class two, where we're getting the full foot contact, uh, you know, heel toe, or, you know, going from heel to toe. Uh, so we're really trying to wire uh, that in uh, initially, and we'll just do it on a low intensity. Uh, so we're not really going going crazy with it. Uh, so I call them baby bounce, and then we'll progressively, uh, you know, move move the intensity up. Uh, we may target target them more vertically. Uh, you know, initially just pushing the bounds vertical. Um, and then just, again, it's very individualized. I would say more than anything is, uh, just depending on, you know, what the athlete is, is, is doing, uh, you know, we'll, we'll progress them. Uh, we'll, we'll do different things with the arms at times. We'll, uh, I, I'm, you know, big on, you know, everything's triplanar in, in movement. Uh, but maybe addressing uh, or emphasizing other planes, you know, having a, a diagonal bound uh, mixed in or something that's just uh, lateral or on a curve or something like that, I think is, is helpful and just uh, broadens the range of, of, of the skill in general. Uh, but I think, you know, why athletes can't bound is an interesting question. Uh, you know, we, we were looking at with the, the contact grid uh, this fall, uh, going through and doing speed bounding and uh, capturing some data uh, with it. Uh, but, you know, a lot of that data was kind of worthless because athletes couldn't speed bound, you know. Um, so, you know, they were they were getting like really, really quality. You know, they had the lowest ground contact times, but they also weren't doing the drill. <laughs> so. Um, so, yeah, like I think there it's uh, just a matter of, you know, they're, they're not ready. Uh, so it's just uh, making sure that you're sticking uh to, you know, maybe not giving, they're not able to handle that stimulus yet. So making sure that you have some unders uh, for those activities uh, that will eventually allow them be able to hit, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, requirements of, of the activity. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll stick with you know, standard skipping and galloping and, and things of that nature uh, to get in sprinting. Obviously, I think is, is, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that we, we address that. Uh, so eventually they'll be able to get to that point where they can handle that uh, intense activity. Yeah. I think I, I like what you said, like starting, starting shorter. And to me, like starting with shorter bounds. And you also said using like lateral bounds or multi-directional. So I had two thoughts with that as one, I have this thought, like if someone can't bound, I, I think of it like they can't, they can't access their heels and therefore the heel is like the gateway to the posterior chain. But again, I mean, you don't want like, it, that doesn't mean a heel striking sprinter is going to be good at bounding. It's usually actually the opposite. They're probably, that person is probably terrible at bounding um, mm -hmm. for the most part. And so the way I see it is like, if you ask someone to to power skip almost, is it like, can they get a good full roll from the heel to the ball of the foot without like almost over dorsiflexing, if that makes sense? Like the people who don't mm -hmm. know how to manage that transfer of, of force uh, from the heel into the ball of the foot or class one to class two lever, it's almost like those people are the people who over, if they do know how to access their heel, they're over dorsiflex, they're like heel strikers, and the force is going to be so high, their brain is just like, nope, F this, like, we're not going to let yeah. you bound. Or then the, the compensation is just to stay off the heel entirely because they mm -hmm. don't know how to manage the, the transfer from the heel to the foot. So I've had good luck, too, doing things like, this is one of those things, little um, like complexes that just hit me in the last year was like, it was actually some of my online clients who struggle with bounding. We do like a isometric um, lunge or, or front foot elevated lunge. Uh, Tim Richard had talked about athletes who have, it's almost like if they're missing mid stance or that, that, that front side action on a level. 
you could do front foot elevated stuff. So like I, we do that mm-hmm. isometrically, then do uh, that Michael Yesis paw back thing where you have like mm-hmm. a cord and like a sweep down and then bound. And I remember mm-hmm. one of my clients sent me a video and it was him bounding and I was just like, was this the same person <laughs> as it was uh, a month ago? Like it doesn't even look like you anymore. So that was, um, that was a bit a couple of things that I've been toying with. Uh, but I, you mentioned the multi, I'd like to get in the multi-directional stuff. Cause I saw, and uh, what do you think about this? Justin Moore, uh, he's been on the podcast three times. Actually, I should have him back to chat about this, but like using lateral bounding as a teacher. Cause it seems like people can almost do like a ladder, like a, like a lateral bound with a little forward emphasis far, far mm-hmm. better than they can with, um, a li- like just pure linear. Do you think that's cause it gives mm-hmm. them more of the foot? Like it just throws you into more of the foot or w- what are your thoughts on using lateral uh, bounds uh, as a teacher? I think you, you have to rotate through the the ball the first uh, yeah first mark metatarsal right I mean you have to when you're when you're doing the lateral bound so I think that's uh, something that I think definitely holds value uh, and you, you know you're also I think you know getting uh, more of like that lateral sling involved with it um, so there's there's some more uh, when you go back to linear uh, you know you, you you've strengthen uh, that pattern a little bit more so you can be a little bit more stable. So I think there's, there's a lot of uh, good value there. And uh, also just in general, uh, creating uh, someone who, you know, may be involved in uh, team sports, you're, you're giving them that, that different stimulus. I think sometimes in track, we just think in, in linear, near sagittal terms and, you know, getting out of that uh, can certainly be helpful. Yeah. I like that you mentioned that. Cause that does the people who really are bad at bounding. It's like they're, they're maybe they're locked in supination uh, they can't, you know, pro, I mean, even, but even saying pronation, supination, like, I mean, that's one of those things that I'm still processing in my head. Cause when you're sprinting, you're not doing a full total body pronation. Like you are when you jump, it's, you have to start thinking in circles more. Like that's one of the mm-hmm. Adarian things that took me, I think two years to figure out, like as I, mm-hmm. as I processed it, but I do real like people who can't bound have a really hard time with inside edge or bound bound mm-hmm. far. Like they're, they're the type of people, like you said with your sprinters who could like cheat the speed bound, like they're just gonna probably maybe just cheat a small portion of the foot. But I saw you, um, I saw you doing a, a video. I don't know if it was on Instagram or an article. I mean, it was an, I think it was an article, but like you were doing bounds preferentially on like the outside edge of your foot, the inside edge of your foot has that, mm-hmm. uh, what did you learn from that? And, and is, I'm just curious. Yeah, so that is, uh, I think that was, a, I had a video of me doing that just uh, barefoot. Uh, and I was just trying to like hit on the uh, ball of the fifth net. And then I would roll through to the ball, ball of the first. Um, and then uh, same with, so that that to me was more like max velocity. Uh, you know, that's that's what, yeah, the fifth you know, how that's going to interact, yeah. right? Yeah. And then uh, with the trying to hit the ball, the first met was more in acceleration, uh, which, my idea from that came from your book, uh, to be honest. So uh, a little plug there, uh, but just reading your, that first chapter with acceleration and, and all that, uh, that, that was kind of where that came from. And I think it's just anytime that you can get athletes to hone in on like a specific, uh, body part and give them just some body awareness. I think that's helpful because I, I'm finding that, athletes in general now like just lack that yes uh absolutely you know like even doing an extreme iso lunge like trying to get them to find their hamstring you know like you know it's like try to drag your front foot back and they 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 can't get their hamstring to contract and uh it's 
it's it's pretty wild. So I think any any time where you can hone in some some body awareness, I think that's helpful. And you can also tie it to well, this is this is the part of your foot that's going to contact an acceleration. So we want your body to feel like it's okay to access that, um, and it gives them a little more connection. Uh, so I think it's it's definitely helpful. Uh, it's it's difficult. Uh, and you know, when you watch that video, it might not look any different, but I felt a difference when I was doing it. Um, so I think it's just uh, little ways that we can kind of build a, a, a holistic base, uh, for athletes and give them something again, that they can connect to with their event. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more with the field thing. Yeah. The last podcast I just did with Lee Taft, you know, he was talking about the differences. I mean, he's been training speed since 89, right? And, mm-hmm. and I would have loved to see his opinion on, or just like a general, maybe just a study on just good moving. And it's like, well, how do you even quantify for this study? Right. It's almost like doing research in the field of psychology. It's a much more softer science and and again but what we're talking about i think is is almost um it's much it's into the art far more than it is i guess like a hard science you could say but you could if you wanted to make a science out of it uh, from terms of like a double blind placebo you know whatever style study to have athletes who are have are quantified as good movers like this athlete moves very well they have body control they have body mastery and just having them go through things like because I've seen athletes who can't even do like a cat cow the first time. They don't even know how to move their spine or their hips mm-hmm. or differentiate joints at all. And so, and I'm, I'm starting to go through this more myself, but the, the amount of athletes that cannot, don't know what, how to move to particular parts of the parts of their body or particular joints seems to be very high. And so I'm curious if good athletes just naturally. Um, and I felt like the swimmers I worked with who were very high level, were like if you ask them to move a joint, do any sort of the, a spinal engine drill or anything, they knew exactly what to do. They could find that joint, that body angle. But swimming's mm-hmm. a little different because it's like it's a little slower. It's a water, much more feel, much more touch. But those mm-hmm. athletes who were good were really good at that stuff. Yeah, that's interesting for sure. And I think you could tie it into the neurotype piece a little bit too, uh, with just like that natural athlete kind of kind of person, uh, but. In general, I uh, yeah, I'm definitely seeing where, I mean, I, I talk about it all the time. Where we have athletes, high school athletes that walk in and, and can't skip, <laughs> you know, and that's that's kind of a problem. So I think a lot of it is just the developmental piece, and I don't know how much of that we can get back if they're not exposed yeah. to it when when they're ro- growing up. But we can either sit there and complain about it, or we could try to fix it the best we can. Yeah, I agree. So with the with like the bound, so you said you did like the fifth met head and the inside edge and then the flat footed. Is that like a, would you use that as a warm up then? Like you're going to go, hey, I'm going to do bounding only on fifth met head. I'm going to do bounding only on this part, only on flat foot and then do like a regular. Like, have you thought about using that as a warm up process for uh, bounding combos and jump, jump yep. prep? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and uh, one thing I'll say, too is we'll do that barefoot we have a, a big turf area so we'll, we'll do that barefoot oh, cool. and um that also you know the intensity is low you know if we're going to go high intensity i'm not going to have you know, yeah. guys, my, my guys uh go uh barefoot but that also that tactile sensation where they yeah. can actually feel with their feet i think is important and that's probably the easiest way when we were talking about the heel toe thing that i noticed whether we're doing uh skipping or galloping or bounding uh you know the initial first couple weeks we'll do low intensity versions where we're barefoot so they can get a better sensation uh where they can feel the heel that's awesome i like that a lot i that was the one the last thing i'll say with that because i actually want to ask a quick expansion on some of the multilateral stuff um 
is uh, I I use the ex those exogen sleeves sometimes, and I I really like them the, the the shin sleeves. And I find when you spiral the weights to make your um, feet or lower legs supinate more, so where you're spiraling the heavy part of the weight towards like the outside of it. So it basically, as gravity makes you fall, it it literally twists your legs to the outside, so eliciting more of a supination response. And I find that especially in my my left, left foot because that's a little more pronated as per pri or whatever and it's more inside edge oriented is as soon as i um, make the weight steer that foot into supination i feel so much springier off the ground in that foot it's crazy so that's just something i've been playing with too and that's what i was thinking about with your um maybe i'll have to use that as a actually i haven't even used that as a warm-up but something like that would be cool as a warm-up too to like to hey what what alignment feels the bounciest and then kind of roll with that yeah, I just got a, a set of the exogen, so I'll have to try that out. Yeah, do it. Cool. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask for a report back here soon. I'm really interested <laughs> yeah. in where you go. So, tell me more about your your lateral. And we maybe talked about this curvilinear bounds on the last podcast, but I, I know I saw like a video of you doing like like linear side linear, or how. What are some of the different combinations again of the bounds and then how how do those shake out in practice? Uh, so yeah, I think you have the, your traditional skater side to side. Uh, we, we'll do ones where they're diagonals. Our, our guys call those fro zones uh, from the Incredibles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of looks like he. So that's that's how they uh, kind of identify with it. Uh, the the linear one uh, to like the diagonal. That's one that I stole from Dan Victor, uh, and that that one I think is uh, just a challenge in terms of coordination. Guys struggle with that, so you know I, I definitely like that. Uh, there's also uh, I think we call it the Polish bleacher bound, which I stole from Ken Jakowski, but that's like uh, where you're actually, uh, you, you have a bleacher and you're going laterally, but you could also move forward uh, where you're just kind of hop, you know, you're jumping up on to the bleacher and switching sides. Uh, so that, that one's another one that we'll do. And you get a pretty uh, big eccentric bang for buck on that one. Uh, and then, yeah, we'll also uh, periodically, I mean, work work curvilinear stuff so whether it's just on the the curve the indoor track or on a circle or uh in a in a serpentine sort of pattern uh we'll work different things uh there i'm probably more partial to skipping uh although you know bounding you know we'll still do uh so skipping galloping a lot on on the curves uh and and bounding like i said we'll we'll do a little bit uh but I, i just think it's again just broadening that that general range of uh, of movement and not making it so sagittal. How do you so? Would that be like the warm up for? Because I think when we typically think bounds, it's like all right, here's you know, go five steps and five bounds as far as you can. Like that's like a big meat mm-hmm. and potatoes like entity there. Would yeah. you do like linear or curvilinear stuff to warm up for that, or would it be its own workout? Is it more of an off season versus in season thing? Tell me a little bit about how you're distributing some of these alternative bounds. Alt bounds, we'll call them, um, okay. versus the actual, the actual like linear as far as you can type type thing. Yeah, we'll absolutely uh, kind of mix things up in terms of a warm up. So it's back to that basketball idea uh, where we're doing a lot of different things, and then if if it's uh, I've been using the contact grid a lot with with bounding. Just we, we look at the power metric there. Uh, so you know, prior to that, we'll, we'll do a variety of different things to make sure that they're feeling good and, and ready to roll. And, and they, they really want to, uh, you know, we again, target that power number. So it does a lot of the same things that setting up timing gates do, right. The intent is, is great. Uh, so they're, they're, you know, trying to hit a power, a higher power number. Uh, 
Uh, and then on on the off days or you know the days that aren't high intensity, we'll still do it, but it just be lower intensity. So, uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, I always am trying to incorporate triplanar activity, uh, you know, and not just be biased uh, to the sagittal plane. So we'll do you know on high intensity days, we'll do it, and it'll be just you know that uh, the alt bounds will be a little bit lower intensity, and then we'll go after the linear, uh, you know, uh, big ticket item. Uh, and then on the off days, it'll be kind of more of the same. Cool. So tell me about, um, cause this will be a segue and I wanted to ask you about, I know you've been doing some work in terms of specific contact times for plyometrics and using the contact or the, 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 the uh, you'll have to tell me again, what grid, the, the muscle is the muscle lab grid. Uh, I'm yes. assuming. Awesome. Um, Cause I, one of the big paradigms uh, kind of shifts. I, I don't remember when this was maybe one of my, like I was like 30 or 31 as I started doing, I don't know. I was, I, I, I had some sort of like little powerlifting phase from somewhere in age 30 to 32. I don't remember where, where a lot of my jumps were extremely poor, um, but I, I, I had a thing where it was like doing cleans. I was doing like high pulls just for tendo speed, not for really for uh, weight. And then I was super saying that with just bounds around like contact time, fast contacts, fast contacts. And that seemed to really boost my capacities, sprinting, jumping, just power out overall far more than just bounding for distance or anything like that. So that was the first experience I had with really a, a contact derivative. So tell me how the power, um, tell me more about how that power indicator works with the bounding and some, some stuff that you're seeing there uh, versus just go bound as far as you can. So I don't really give them any cues heading into utilizing that. Uh, and I would say, you know, for the most part, they're just trying to, in that context, they're trying to bound as far as they can. Uh, but you know, that what I've noticed is like within a, a traditional double arm, like power bound, uh, the number that uh, tends to be pretty good, uh, is 25 and above. So that's in Watts per kilogram. Uh, so that's getting, uh, you know, I'm probably looking at, you know, one of, one of our guys is probably close. You know, I think he can be a 50 foot triple jumper. You know, he's hitting about 30, uh, on that. Uh, so it's, it's just something that they're, and then I'll have athletes that are down in like that, you know, 15, 15 to 20, uh, you know, for the, for the earlier, uh, the younger athletes. Uh, and again, it's just something that, that gives them a little bit more intent. Uh, but they do experiment with it too. Uh, you know, I, I had an athlete that was just like, well, I'm going to try to get my power number up and do a speed bound. And that didn't work <laughs> for, 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 the, for that power metric. You know, the speed bound that tend to be more around 10. Oh, interesting. Uh, for that. So uh, the contact time, obviously shorter uh, for sure. Uh, but yeah, not getting, uh, you know, the air time is, is quite a bit different. So uh, I'm not exactly sure how that power metric is, is calculated. Yeah, um, it's, like, it's like social media yeah. algorithms. What does it take to get my right. post to the top? Right. I don't know. And, I've, and I'm a math teacher and I'm like interested in that. I'm like, you know, looking at all the data that it collects, like how are they getting this number? And I, I haven't figured it out yet, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's still just something it's, a, it's, and I think there you, you're what I'll be able to do as I use it more and more is just build a body of data that's specific to the athletes that I coach. So now I can say, Hey, this, this guy won uh, state at triple in, in triple jump and his power metric was 33 and you're a sophomore and, and you are at 29, you know? So I think there's power there uh, yeah. with, with, with the numbers. And uh, you know, that's kind of what I'm looking forward to, to building. 
Well, it's just that. Yeah, it's just more specific KPIs rather than just saying squat more or whatever. And again, right. you know, for that those age groups, yeah, usually do you get stronger, but it's it's just such a I think it's just it's kinda like throwing a you know, in the throws. It's like how far can you throw with the eighteen if your implements the sixteen? How far are you throwing the fourteen? And stuff that's just closer. And it's probably kind of fun too, the tech the technological element. Um, but without getting too far into that, just because, again, most of us are, don't have uh, contact grids, I actually would like to get one soon. But even just even just playing with the contact times has been uh, fun for me. I think the old school was, this was in like uh, maybe an old like British track and field magazine, but it's basically like bound for 30 meters, count your contacts, and they had this elaborate time function. And not elaborate, but just a, making it a function of time and power. And again, you had to do it. It was like the old school way, you know, it wasn't, you didn't have real time feedback like that and probably more complicated to do, but that stuff's been around. And I, I, I just think that as soon as you put it under the gun, even Don, Donald Chu, uh, back, who knows, a hundred episodes ago, he was talking about having one of the, this was way before just jump. He had someone make him a switch mat to do bounding contacts on and stuff like that mm-hmm. for plyos. And so I just think it changes the game and it's really useful. Uh, so in terms yeah. of your other, oh, if you have any other thoughts, I was going to ask you about just. Uh, I'll just say uh, the one thing that uh, I think is gold is uh, at least for high school males, their performances are pretty much identical to elite women. Interesting, right? So you take that. Oh yeah. You look at the IAAF uh, biomechanical reports. Like all that data is, I mean, pretty amazing. So we, I can look and take an average of like I think I have the twenty seventeen world championship uh, women's results. So the, like the last contact uh, for long jump, I think the average is like 0.113. So, so now I tell an athlete, Hey, we're on the contact grid. We have, we're just going to do rebound jumps over, over hurdles. Um, and what I want you to try to do is hit a contact time. I don't care. I'm, I'm not, I don't care about how high you go, but find the height so you can hit 0.113. And then once they find it and they can go through, uh, and do it repetitively. And now it's like, okay, try to go a little bit higher, but still hit that. Yeah. You know, and it's just, again, it just attaches that, that great intent to it. I love that. I think that I, I, I really have so shifted my mentality and this could go for really any, anything it could just from a, a contact time and sensing the foot first. Because we do mm-hmm. build our technique around what's happening in the bones of the foot. And again, everyone's different. People have different shaped talus bones and there's different alignments. And it's just, you know, there's no, there is no one model with the foot and, and people's arch heights and everything, right? But just to mm-hmm. have some sort of, because uh, especially with long jump, like people who like their shin or jumping for distance, people whose shin just goes way, way, way far forward before that foot toes off, that's a problem. Like you're never going to, mm-hmm. you will never be as good as you can be unless that is taken care of. And so I think that's awesome to have practices that you revolve. I, I remember even, you know, I, without with just having a coach's eye um, on my phone, I would have uh, like club high jump. We would do, hey, I just want you to make this takeoff as fast as you can. I'm going to video it. We're going to go through, I'm going to count frames and we're going to see how quick that was. Okay. And so for athletes who were just, you know, I had to be binary. It was like for athletes who were just spending way too much time on the ground, we would get the phone out and I would say, Hey, let's count, let's count frames and let's, let's do that. And that seemed to be very helpful because as soon as you saw what that athlete looked like with the shortened paradigm, it was so much better. Like all the technical stuff over the bar cleaned up, like everything got better. Um, and to think that, it's just that was the lowest hanging fruit for that athlete. And again, it just it takes a while. You have to sit there and you have to drop the little counter and coach's eye and all that. Just, it's, right. it's clunky. Um, 
But I love that stuff. Uh, I think that's that's really um, an important way to, whether it's track two or just someone doing a basic drop jump in the weight room, um, ba- finding that low-hanging fruit, I think, is important because we just tend to think in height and, and those things. But c- working from a ground contact time up, I think, is much more valuable. Yeah, I, I agree. And it, like I said, it just, uh, they like it too. So it's it's like a win-win. When you do like depth jumps and hurdle hops, because I want to make sure I'm staying on some topics that could be relevant for track or just strength or volleyball mm-hmm. or basketball or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But just like like hurdle hops and depth jumps and things like that. Are you how are you managing contact times for your athletes? Obviously, who have a very shorter contact time type orientation, but how do you manage contacts with those uh, depth jumps and things? Uh, usually, uh, it. If I'm looking at, I, I just classify everything as a rebound for the most part. So, you know, if we're looking at drop or depth, I, and then, mm. I, so what I'm able to do, I, like my cutoff is usually like, uh, you're going to see more of a four foot contact with 0.2 and below, you know, for the most part in terms of uh, uh, contact time. Uh, and then anything that that's above, uh, you're going to get probably more of the heel involved. Uh, so that's kind of one, one big thing uh, that I'll look at. Um, and that's that, that I would say is kind of uh, the big thing. And uh, we also will, uh, I'll, I'll again, kind of give them the, the opportunity to sort of display different things within a session with the grid now. So like in those hurdle jumps, like what they would want to do, like initially I'd say, okay, you know, you're going to try to hit uh, 0.113, uh, but then they're high school boys and they want to, you know, try to jump as high as they can, but still hit 0.113. But that's okay to me. It's like yeah. that's oh, yeah. fine. All right, they're gonna you're gonna have a, a higher ground contact time. That's okay. You're still we're still getting a great stimulus here. Uh, so I'll give them that target initially, but then they kind of run with it and do their own thing, and it just sort of organically goes from like just a uh, like a more class two bias type plyometric uh, where they're hitting on the forefoot to something where they're they're getting more of the the, the full foot involved, and, and that's okay. Are you saying when it goes? You're saying the just a second. So Ryan, you're saying when it's faster ground contact time, the heel's coming down, or what are you? No, saying? no, no, no. I would say no, that. Yeah, this, yeah. It's over. Yeah. There. So more. Yeah. Sorry if that didn't come out right, but yeah, if it's more forefoot biased, that's going to be a shorter ground contact time. Uh, when the, when they start jumping higher, then then the contact times are going to uh, increase, and uh, you know, you're getting more of like the the full foot involved. Gotcha. Because it's funny because I've heard some coaches talk about, I don't want to get in the weeds too much, but like, oh, it's got to be a flat foot contact. Like they coach, it's like almost they want to coach this this paradigm of how the foot should hit before they say anything about contact time or outputs or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. Which I, I don't, it's weird because I found that if an athlete actually wants to have a really short contact time, I see the foot, I just posted an Instagram video like this, like the foot's going to seek the ground real fast. Like the ball of the foot is going to seek the ground first. Cause it's almost like it wants to get that sensory load real quick. It's like, Hey, mm-hmm. we got to get off the ground fast. So we got to sense the ground real fast. So you see a lot of plantar mm-hmm. flexion, a lot of toes pointed down and then the heel kind of touch. It goes as much as it needs to down probably based right. off of how strong of a class two lever the athlete has their arches and then pops back yeah. up. So it's kind yeah, of, I would I agree with that. Yeah. It's just interesting. But then you think, well, how much did, since the heel didn't hit, how much transfer does this have? You know, if, if it's a running jump and those types of things. So it's maybe yeah. a complex, a little complex in that regards. Yeah. So for me to kind of balance that, it's like, I know that I'm going to get those full foot contacts with the galloping and the skipping yeah. and, and the bound, you know, the power bounding that we're going to do. 
So if we're doing hurdle hops and, and it's not a full foot contact, it's like, that's, that's okay. Cause I know we're, we're going to get it somewhere else. Yeah. I would agree with that. Cause I think you want to be strong in that class two lever. Anyways, when you do get to the mm-hmm. class two ball, the foot, you want to be great off the ball of foot, like the Russian long yeah. jumpers and all that stuff. So yeah. And like you yeah, said, you're getting that's it. the anyways. moment of truth. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I'll call that the moment of truth forever. When they're up to that ball of the foot, how strong is that action? Oh, I love that. Okay. Real quick. Last, um, last question before we bounce here for t- the day. But, uh, since the last time I talked to you, at least not, not the little mini talk on isometrics, but how over the last two or three years has your views on just speed and, and sprint training, uh, evolved in how you've utilized some of the concepts you've learned about? Um, you know, I'm just curious, especially, I mean, obviously yours is more the scope of a, a long jump, a triple jump run up, those types of things. Um, but how have your views on speed changed and have there been any things that you've done that reflect that? Uh, I don't know if things have changed uh, too much. Uh, one thing that, you know, I think we see on social media a lot is just things are very polarized. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think at the end of the day, what we really need to keep in mind is that we need to coach the athlete that's in front of us. So, you know, a quick example, uh, I had a, a pretty good uh, long jumper a couple years ago, and he also ran the 400. And he really felt the need to have some pretty grueling tempo-type workouts. Like, that's what he felt he needed to be prepared. So that's what we had him do. <laughs> you know, it's not something, like, I, I'm not a, 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 when we're in season, you know, I'm not a huge tempo guy uh for for most of my athletes but like if that's what the athlete feels he needs then i'm going to make sure that i provide that because at the end of the day you know they need to be able to go up to the starting line or or get onto you know the runway and feel fully confident that their training has brought them to a point where they can be successful so that's always the framework that i'm going to operate under is coaching that athlete in front of me um so and giving them uh what they need uh so from that standpoint, you know, when I think about just my general approach, like when we're timing things, it's max effort, right? And and they're going out and I'm not going to instruct too much. I'm going to kind of let them do what they need to do to produce a great output. And you'll see them experiment with things. Uh, and if they get start getting frustrated with not hitting particular times, uh, you know, maybe offer some insight, and, you know, some other things that they, that they could try. Uh, but on those other days where we're not timing, whether, you know, that could be wickets or, uh, you know, just doing some accelerations or block work where, where we're not timing, uh, there we'll focus more on the technical side of things and try to get them to feel certain positions or, or, you know, feel certain parts of their foot hitting the ground or, or whatever. Uh, so that's, that's kind of, uh, the lens that I operate, uh, under, uh, with that sort of stuff. Um, one thing that, you know, I, I did notice, and this is probably, something I should have noticed a long time ago. Uh, but with jumpers uh, in particular, you know, I'm dealing with the more elastic type athlete. So when we were doing fly runs, typically we would start with like maybe just a, a 20 meter acceleration. And then we would progress into a uh, 20 meter of a run in into a 10 meter fly and then move that window back 25, 30 uh, into a 10 meter fly. Uh, but those elastic athletes, uh, would get frustrated. So I had, you know, I've had some pretty good long jumpers and they were not hitting times uh, that they were, were pretty uh, happy with. Uh, you know, and we've also had some pretty good sprinters, so they're going to be competitive with those uh, uh, really high end sprinters sprinters. Uh, and, you know, my philosophy with it was, you know, I knew that their skill wasn't to accelerate. Uh, they, they're just really 
great gifted at recycling free energy. And, you know, that's why they're elastic. That's why they're bouncy. And they would also, they were also tended to be pretty good 400 meter runners. So, you know, my first instinct with that was, you know, you, you got to get going, like you just got to blast it out from the get go and, and try to try to get up to speed. Um, that wasn't working for them. Uh, and I think it's just because it was going against what they are good at. Like they're not good at acceleration, but I'm asking them to put put all their energy into something that they're not good at. So then by the time they get to that fly zone, it's like they're, they're cached. So what one athlete wanted to do, he's like, just let me start 20 meters further back. And I'm like, okay. So he started 20 meters further back and kind of just eased into the acceleration, goes through the gates and PRs by like 400 of a second. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so then, you know, a couple other guys wanted to do it. And it was kind of the same thing. So with the elastic type athlete, I think uh, that, and that gets into more of like uh, what I would call like a max velocity blast where you just go right from, you're trying to go crazy right from the get go uh, versus a max velocity bleed where you ease into that acceleration. And if your target is to hit your highest velocity in, in the workout, if that's like your goal, well, we should make sure that we're providing the opportunity for the athlete to kind of figure out how to get there and, uh, you know, make at least give them that option. Yeah, for sure. I, I would have most definitely been one of those athletes who needed the longer run up. So I, I definitely get that. I think it's, um, yeah, again, like you said, teaching it to the athlete, it's definitely important to do that. And I, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard managing a group too. Cause I would say it'd be easy to say, well, everyone should have an individual run up, but it, at the end of the day, it's like, it's easier just to say, start here. Everyone goes from here. <laughs> you know, it's something right. you do have to learn. I, I mean, that's how I used to roll with it. So I definitely, um, there's definitely that. And maybe you could almost have like two different starting spots, the elastic start and the or that's probably imagine mm -hmm. what you ended up doing kind of had the elastic and concentric start. Yeah. And we, uh, like in early in the fall, uh, we had uh, where it was like, okay, you're going to do two from here. Yeah. Everyone's going to do two from here and then, oh, okay. And it'll be a blast style. And then now everyone's going to do two from back there. Cause we didn't know at that time. And it's just like, we'll, we'll see what happens and just let us know which one you like better. Cool. So what was, I, I sorry, actually I, I'm behind the times cause I didn't, I remember hearing about that article, but, did you find and most people like the bleed is the gradual run up into the fly and the blast is like just go uh, as fast as yeah. you can right did most mm -hmm. athletes run faster with the gradual i know i've actually seen research that would say yes actually that the most would run with the the bleed but was there anyone who would run faster actually with the blast style where they went all out uh the more concentric type athlete, okay for sure yeah interesting would there would the goal be with those athletes to actually make their bleed like be superior i guess like to be more better at the more better to be better at the end of the race or whatever uh, i don't know uh i think that's a good good question and I, I, it probably depends on, on on that athlete i mean I, I can think of uh you know some athletes that were you know elite at like 60 meters but then any you know beyond that would really fall off uh after you know when, when they would get outdoors and, and go to hundreds and you know the 200 was just mm -hmm. like forget about it uh so you know, from that standpoint, um, I, yeah, I, th I think there could be value. Um, but it, you know, at the same time, you're, you're balancing that with like, you know, why are they, why are they good at what they're good at? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you don't want to take away anything from that either. So I got you. Yeah, no, for sure. It's always that tricky balance and things like mm -hmm. strengths and weaknesses, a whole nother podcast, but no, I, I hear it's something to, yeah. 
think about. So, well, hey, Rob, thank you so much for your time, man. I, I love the conversational flow of our, our talk and you gave me a lot of ideas and things. And it's nice to talk these out because I think it's stuff that we're both mutually really interested in and always tinkering with. So I appreciate talking to you today. I appreciate the opportunity. That wraps up another show. Thanks for being here with us. Uh, really fun talk there with Rob with a ton of just practical nuts and bolts ideas and observations on how to make our training process a little bit better. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. We'd really appreciate it. And we'll see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.